Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are here for another small doses. Um, our guest today is is a quintessential, like in been in every spot in every pot kind of we love a multi-hyphenate and we love somebody that is using critical thinking to discuss these places and spaces that we're all in that are, it's kind of like against our own will. I feel like on social media, like against our, <laughs> against our own will. Uh, ladies and gentlemen and non-binary folks, Bridget Todd is with us today. Uh, Bridget is the host of There Are No Girls in the Internet podcast. Uh, she has also taught at Howard University and, and places of higher learning. Is also associated with Afropunk. Bridget is a fan of Small Doses podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and let me read the exact. I was told that you are an internet toxicity and disinformation guru. That's correct. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll I take mean, that. I refer to myself as a common sense specialist. So I'm like, all right, yeah. Let's all be a part of the world of just making things simpler and clarifying. Yes. I, um, I appreciate that. And I, pre- I appreciate all the work that you do bringing common sense back into the conversation, back into our online spaces. <laughs> it is much needed. Thank you. I feel like, you know, we just see a lot of... Um, hyperbole that is not really associated with like the actual life that's like being lived. And so I feel like, you know, it's important to sometimes ground things. People also sometimes like to call that negativity. Um, And I'm like, yeah, but the reality of things is pretty negative. Um, Like the other day, like someone had posted, there was like a site that I follow a page that I follow on Instagram and they had posted Khloe Kardashian walking and they were like, her body is bodying. Um, or something like that. And I was like, you know, the attention y'all give this like medically modified, not no talent having family is beyond my scope of comprehension. Like, I just don't get it. And someone was like, your negativity in this space is not necessary. I'm like, oh, and someone else was like, it actually is <laughs> because why do they keep posting this and acting like it's a standard that we should be aspiring to? And I was like, right. but it's not negativity. It's just the reality. And the reality is, is a negative one. But so talk to me because literally two seconds before I came on this podcast, y'all, the Smart Bunny and Black chat on my phone started blowing up because Bridget had tweeted that Elon Musk officially owns Tesla. And I mean, sorry, officially owns uh, Twitter. And you said, Black creativity has always made social media what it is, and Twitter is no exception. It's now owned by Elon Musk, someone whose staffers say was so repulsed by the sight of their Black faces, they had to physically hide when he visited the workplace. So basically, Tesla is Abercrombie and Fitch. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's... (laughs) 
pretty much get to the back, you know? Yeah. Um, he definitely has a legacy of, according to his own employees, perpetuating a racist, toxic work environment. And now he owns Twitter, which we, we've come to rely on as this really important public communication tool. And I just think no good can come of it, particularly not for Black folks who we know have been the lifeblood of the app. If, if it was not for Black Twitter, our creativity, our labor, our talent, uh, unpaid, might I add, what would there. Twitter be? What would Twitter be? And so I'm just very curious to see what the what the future will hold for, for our voices on that platform. Why do you think Twitter allowed this to happen? Because apparently shareholders aren't happy about this. Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I, I, this is a situation where I think I've been incorrect. Like, I thought that Elon Musk was just talking about buying Twitter because he wanted to have a couple of news cycles with where that was the headline. I didn't think he was actually going to do it. And so, when it, you know, I, I don't know why Twitter would do this. I think that Twitter is really trying to make a grasp for a certain kind of relevancy. We're seeing other platforms like TikTok kind of quickly become the place where people are getting their their discourse and their news. I think that Twitter needs to do something drastic to win people back. And I think Elon Musk, he does have a reputation with a certain kind of user. And I wonder if that's the kind of user that they're trying to court, right? Like people who really want to talk a big game about free speech, people who want to want their social platforms to be kind of trollier or like a little bit more toxic or a little bit more, you know, just the temperature turned Dark up. webby. Correct. Gross. And by the way, Twitter is mean enough as it is. I don't even engage on Twitter anymore because it became a platform where I feel like folks are trying to out-snark each other um, in a way that wasn't like witty as much as it was just like how mean. It felt like when I would go to open mics and like unfunny white boys would be like, I can be more racist than you. This is comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to, I used to really be like on the Twitters, like back in 08, like it was really a thing. And fast forward, I will, I had to literally like teach myself to just like do a tweet and leave. Like, yeah. because the, 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 the toxicity of this place and this, you know, so the topic of this interview, I mean, of this uh, episode is side effects of um, social media toxicity. And I feel like, you know, toxicity isn't just in people being mean. It speaks to you also talking about disinformation, right? And that to me is very incredibly toxic to our society in a multitude of ways. We've seen the way that it allowed for a whole president to get elected. So can you first just talk to me before we even delve all the way into that? Can you first just talk to me on in how you even ended up on this path? Like, where did you, like, where do you feel like the, the, the journey pivoted to you being like, you know what, this is my space. Yeah. I love starting with this question because it really was a journey. You know, I was someone who professionally worked on internet issues for a good chunk of my adult life. Um, that was sort of my space, but I always sort of saw it as just my nine to five gig. I didn't really see it as anything that like impacted me or my community specifically. And then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, I really had to see the ways and contend with the ways that disinformation, conspiracy theories, oftentimes dangerous information had permeated in my own, like my own family group chat. So then I had to say like, wait a minute, what is actually going on? Like, I remember, you know, I would have my like wild cousins 
say things about COVID that I knew weren't true, say things Mm -hmm. about vaccines that I knew weren't true. And it became clear to me how much inaccurate information was showing up in the lives of people that I loved, in the lives of people that like are parts of my community, parts of my day to day. And so I saw the ways that it was impacting their behavior, impacting their decision-making for the worse. I wanted to turn my lens to my own people, the people that I love, and, and, and really lift up and talk about the ways that disinformation, misinformation, inaccurate information really do target traditionally marginalized communities. And so, you know, it, it's it's so insidious because disinformation and, and bad actors who push disinformation, yeah. um, they really like, they know how to target our traumas, our our, our tensions, our, our, our fears so artfully. And as Black folks, we show up with a lot of tensions and traumas and fears just of the experience of being a Black person in the United States. And so I wanted to kind of create a little bit of an intervention where we could talk about these things honestly, talk about our triggers and our, our baggage and our traumas as Black folks, and talk about the ways that they leave us open to be exploited by people who are trying to mislead us. And so in doing so, I mean, is that... I want to hear... Well, first I want to ask you, you said that you were always doing this kind of work, right? So right. can you tell me like in like the explicit ways? Yeah. So I, my work in technology before I got into the disinformation space specifically was really kind of like building community online. Right. And so trying to help people like I, for a long time, I was working at medium, the, um, uh, blogging platform, yeah. um, actually, uh, co-founded by, uh, Ev, I can't remember his last name. Uh, Ev Williams, excuse me. Okay. Ev Williams, who is a co-founder of Twitter. So kind of interesting that we're having this conversation oh. today. Um, but yeah, so my work was largely helping, you know, traditionally marginalized writers on online use technology and the internet to find their pockets of online communities they could speak to. And so, again, I loved that work. That work was so enriching for me. But I really just saw it as like you know, oh, this person's a great writer. They should be using our platform to get more readership and to inspire community and like, you know, to reach out to their their listener base or their, their, you know, audience base. I really didn't see it as, I didn't have a sharp focus for the urgency of the kind of conversations that we're having online and the way that it can impact our real lives. I guess I really just saw it as sort of like, you know, just like, oh, like I'm helping writers build their platforms using technology. Like I just saw it as very non-political. Not, yes, there, there wasn't yes. a lot of like, It was you know, very transactional. Like Exactly. Yep. And so with, the, with There Are No Girls on the Internet though, I mean, the that to me is like a very pointed direction. So can you talk to us about your podcast and how that speaks to this pivot? Absolutely. I mean, honestly... My, my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, was really born from this place of frustration. I, I began getting really frustrated. So often. That's the- so often, yes. I'm sure you know all <laughs> yep. about it. You know, I would see these white, straight, cisgender men really taking up so much space in the mm. conversation about what it means to be online, what it means to be on social media. And that's not correct, right? Anybody who's been on Twitter knows that social, or any social media app, frankly, knows that People of color, queer folks, trans folks, we are the lifeblood of what makes these places fun, interesting, culturally relevant places to be. And when the conversation is dominated by people who 
don't reflect that reality, there's a problem. And so I wanted to create a space where our experiences can really be meaningfully centered in conversations about what it means to show up online and in technology. How do we continue to challenge that? I mean, because to me, like when when Elon Musk buys Twitter, it's it's like the exact, it's just like a, a giant slap in the face um, to the reality of what we're contributing, which is the consistent. Like to me, I am in a constant state of frustration that, to your point, not just internet spaces, but television spaces, film spaces, like creative spaces are so profoundly enriched by the multitude of perspectives outside of the white perspective. And yet continuously, those perspectives are given the least amount of like monetary value. They're given the least amount of marketing, like, you know, but they continuously break through and, you know, betting on themselves continuously charge forward into like a whole new realm that, that ultimately benefits the white space that didn't value them. Exactly. I mean, that's that's tale as old as time. And I think that for Black folks, for other marginalized voices on the internet, our story is really one of making lemonade out of lemons, being handed the worst and making something out of it. Because time and time again, we are the ones who are, you know, look at something like TikTok, where a, a Black youth can do a dance on TikTok, and then people will take that dance, make money, get get monetary value or material value, get brand deals, endorsements off of it, and then the actual creator gets nothing. Nothing. And, the, and, and what we tell these people is, you should be grateful to be a footnote on something that you created. You should be grateful to be mentioned at all when everything is, when all of the monetary value of something is taken from you and given to somebody else, you should be grateful that that even happened. We tell Black folks, women, queer folks, other marginalized people online, that our experiences, our value, our labor, our creativity, our beauty, our love doesn't make a difference while we watch somebody else get rich from it. And that is unacceptable. Yet we stay creating, we stay on these spaces, dominating the conversation and creating culture, creating movements, right? Yet we are still overlooked or at, you know, at, at best overlooked, at worst intentionally erased day in and day out. And so I I think it's really, for me, it was sort of this idea of flipping my understanding of who gets to be valued online, who gets to dominate the conversation online, who gets to take up space online. Because I think that we tell marginalized people on the internet, nobody cares about your experience. You aren't a lot, like, you don't, ha- who, who are you to have an opinion about who owns Twitter? Well, I'm, we are what makes Twitter great. So yeah. <laughs> we should, we, they should be accountable to us, right? And so I think it's really about flipping that mindset of saying, we are what makes these spaces worth anything. Therefore, people that run them need to be accountable to us and not the, not the other way around. So when is it time to do the, so like, you know, the black, the, 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 the black uh, TikToks was like, we're done doing dances. And that was that. But to my knowledge, they never came back. Yeah, I mean, I that was such an interesting thing. I, first of all, I think that the younger generation, God love them, I think the younger generation really has this, this really interesting attitude of, I'm not going to stay where I'm not respected. If I, and I think that, I think I see that 
not only in, you know, how they understand their experiences online, but look at what's happening with our workforce right now. Like I'm not about at a job that's not going to respect me. I'm not about to say at a job that's going to underpay me or undervalue me. That's out. And I think that young people have a very different understanding of their worth and their value. And so I think those those creators, they said, we're not going to continue to create creativity into this app if it's not going to love us back. And they bounced. And I think it really, to me, represented a shift in how this younger generation is seeing their worth and their value and kind of will make demands of how that will be respected. And if those demands are not made, I guess that they're really okay to say, well, we're going to take our, we're going to take our creativity and our work somewhere else. Where do they go? That's a great question. I know that Jalila Harmon, the the young black woman who created the renegade dance, she's like an, she is, lives in Atlanta and is like teaching dance classes and probably doing great, right? Like offline, Mm. right? And so it's one of those double-edged sword things where I hate the idea that these creators don't feel valued and don't feel seen and heard so that they leave because I, they bring me joy. Like, but right. I love, I love to bask in their joy, but I also really respect them saying like, no, I'm not an, a, a never ending well of, you know, content, content that people can just, that people can just mine for me and get rich off while just leaving me empty. Like, like, spaces have to nourish. They have to pour back into people who give so much. And I think that what they're saying is I'm not going to continue to stay at a, at, in a space that just takes from me and never pours into me. I mean, that says a lot too, right? Because I think a lot of us have, you know, in the last 40 years, we haven't really experienced the power of boycott in a real way and how it oftentimes ends up inconveniencing the ones who are boycotting um, more than it inconveniences the people being boycotted um, initially, right? Like there's a certain level of being willing to give up something in order to get something. And there's no telling how long that's going to take, right? Like the Montgomery boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott was like an excessive amount of time at the end of the day. Like the people who were boycotting that bus, like they, they took the bus because they needed to take the bus. Like it wasn't like that was an easy thing to give up. Like you got to now walk to work and then work. Right. I don't think our, I don't think the last couple generations, myself included, like truly understand the measure of like, okay, I'm giving this up to get. And so these young folks who I believe are absolutely going to be the ones who shake shit up. Um, they're teaching us something. They're teaching us like, yeah, we may not get to be on TikTok like getting all these likes and feeling affirmed in that way. However, I'm not going to be just being happy with likes while people are taking the thing I'm giving and actually getting income and actually getting like careers, etc. We shouldn't get the scraps when we are the actual meat on the bone. When I look at Twitter, I feel like there's you know, I'm curious what the deal was that was made with Elon? Like, is it that, you know, Twitter gets to stay in power? Like the the same people at Twitter get to stay running the site while he is just now owner in name and that's all he wanted. Like, I'm, I'm also just kind of wondering, like, where does the toxicity of his insertion into this platform, where does it, where could it possibly show up? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I think what you just asked is, as as the people who are on Twitter, you know, it's a user base, we deserve to we deserve answers on that. We deserve transparency on that. And the fact that we don't know, we have no idea, all we can do is speculate. And when this deal went down, 
Elon Musk's statement that he put out was so vague. It didn't give us any kind of specifics. I think that's a problem. I think that as the as the user base that, uh, uh, that is the reason why Twitter exists, we deserve some. We deserve to know the answers to those questions. How will this leadership show up in our day to day operations? How will this leadership show up in the way that like will Donald Trump be brought back to the platform? Like, right. Those are questions that we frankly deserve clarity on and transparency on, and it just demonstrates how little I think the people that run these platforms feel they need to be accountable to us. The fact that nobody said, well, this this deal is going to go forward. Let's get a statement together that answers some of the basic questions users will probably have. Is Donald Trump coming back? Is, Is this going to change? Is that going to change? The fact that nobody even felt that they needed to even prepare something like that to announce a move like that, I feel like really tells you all you need to know about how they see and how they value us, the humans that make their their platform what it is, the reason why it exists. So our only power is really just not being on the platform. I mean, it's this is something <laughs> that I think about a lot, right? Like, of course. I, I, so a, a few months ago, actually, maybe it was a year ago, there was this big campaign around Facebook asking everybody to log out of Facebook for three days. And I interviewed um, one of the staffers at, who was behind this, this push about why that was. Like, why three days? Why aren't you asking people to, to delete the app or, or boycott entirely? And they said, you know, it's really difficult to ask people to divest from something in that way. And so I... I would never tell somebody like, oh, you need to delete Facebook, you need to delete Twitter. But if you can take breaks from it, if you can delete the app from your phone, if you can change your relationship to it such that it, it, it has less power over our day-to-day lives and less power over, over our democracy, that's something. And it's so I think that when we're talking about things like boycotting certain social media platforms, there is this reality that people, particularly marginalized people, are using those same platforms to build movements, to speak out, to express their organizing and activism. And in certain parts of the world, those platforms are how people communicate, right? So like if you're in certain parts of, you know, the global South, Facebook is essentially the internet because that they're the only game in town. And so telling somebody like, oh, you should boycott Facebook, you should delete it entirely. You're basically saying you should have no telecommunications presence uh, Entirely, and so you said the global South. Yeah, so parts of you know uh, parts of Africa, Asia, like in places like that, the same way that America Online, when we were growing up, kind of was the internet. Yes. Uh, in a lot of those places, the the main websites that are used for tele- telecommunications are Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram, and they're all Facebook. They're all they're all. Meta. I was going to say right, right, right. They're all Meta. How do you feel about Meta? Oof, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just first say, can you actually like explain to us what Meta is as a company, but also like what the metaverse is that they want us to engage in? So it's kind of a scam. Like I have to say, so Meta, so I mean, I guess I'll just keep it real. Facebook was experiencing a ocean of bad press after, you know, several whistleblowers spoke out, most notably Francis Hagan, um, about how harmful the company has been and how harmful the company has knowingly been. I think that under that wave of bad press, they thought, guys, we got to change this. We have to like change the conversation Mm. so that it's not about our bad press. It's about something else. Conveniently, they announced they were changing their name to Meta and they were going to be focusing on the metaverse. Uh, interestingly enough, when they announced that, 
it didn't come with a lot of actual substantive, you know, and here's what that looks like. Here's what that means. They just said, our new thing is going to be the metaverse and we're changing our name to reflect that. And I have to say, it kind of worked. I feel like a lot of tech journalists kind of took the bait and just said, oh, look over here. Okay, it, it's a metaverse now. Um, in terms of what the actual metaverse is, I, I hate that it's become so associated with Facebook because the idea of VR and the metaverse completely predates Facebook. Facebook did not invent the idea of the metaverse. You know, Facebook did not invent the idea of using VR, using a headset to connect with a virtual world. Um, it's been around for a really long time, but but by the way they announced the name change and their new focus on the metaverse, it made it seem as though they had invented it. When that's just laughable, it's just you know it, it completely pre- predates that announcement. Oh yeah, I mean we've seen on Black Mirror, like I mean exactly <laughs> the metaverse, this idea that you can go and exist in this other place in another form of yourself, right? Like that's been around. I mean that's been around since Tron. Yeah, it's it's not a new concept. Ready and Player One. Exactly. One of my favorite movies, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I feel like this is... You're, you are living in your disinformation purpose right now because the truth is their marketing uh, machine is incredible, right? And they're able to spin things and say things and do things in a fashion that makes it seem like you have to question yourself. Like, well... Is this different than that? Because the way they're presenting this is like it's different, but it it looks the same. They have some of the most, I have to give it to them. They have some of the most genius marketing spin people because I, Facebook is my, I really am critical of a lot of social media companies. Facebook is the one I hate the most, right? It's the one that I, I like, I, I think that with other, so great question. I think I hate Facebook the most because Look at a company like YouTube, right? YouTube is owned by... YouTube is has done all kinds of janky stuff that I don't agree with. And they're owned by Google. Google also has a lot of work to do to, to, to be a better platform, but they also do a lot of public good, right? They run Gmail. They run Google Maps. They run... There are so many public goods that Google does. If, if Google disappeared tomorrow, we would really feel the impact. Yes. If Facebook disappeared tomorrow, it would only be, be positive, a, a positive, right? <laughs> it would be a net positive. So it's like it's like one of these things that only, to, in my mind, other than WhatsApp, because again, in other parts of the world, some people really rely on that for communication. But if Facebook disappeared tomorrow, in my mind, that would only be good. It, it's like it's like not. I don't see it as a public good. I only see it as a, a public ill. And so I think that's why I hate Facebook so much. That you know, every time they put out a statement that's like, oh, good news, we're doing XYZ initiative. Unless they are saying they're going to shut down and dismantle their company <laughs> and give reparations to the marginalized communities that they have deeply impacted and the only good thing that Facebook could do in my book is shut down. Why though? But like, why do you feel like they are so terrible? I think, oh, what a good question. I think that... Facebook, at its core, at its ethos, had a really harmful, a really harmful mission at its start. And so, mm-hmm. I, I watched an interview with Mark Zuckerberg recently, where he said, 
The, the reason why I wanted to start Facebook is because during the invasion of Iraq, I saw all these people talking about like, like the invasion and their opinions about it. And I wanted to build a platform so that people could have discourse about this big, you know, this big thing happening in our world. That is BS. He made that story up. If anyone, he, he started Facebook because he wasn't getting pussy on campus. Because he wasn't getting laid. Because he That's wasn't why. getting laid. So this, this like revisionist history of, of what was at the core of the, the foundation of why Facebook exists is, is completely bogus. But you and I and pretty much everybody else knows Facebook started because he couldn't get laid. Facebook started as a hot or not app to rate the women that he saw on his college campus. He can spin it any way he wants. He can have any revisionist history that he wants. That's just the truth. It's reality. It's a fact. You can't change that. And so I think that that really demonstrates the way that misogyny, harm, toxicity is yeah. at the fabric of what this platform is. It, 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 it inspired its very start. And so I feel like you can't reform that. You can't change that. That is at the fabric of, of what this platform is and what it exists to do. And so I think that it's only ever going to be something that unless it's meaningfully fundamentally like restructured, I think that it's it's only going to perpetuate the same kind of toxicity that inspired its founding. I feel like, you know, after there was the congressional hearings and they were challenged on like, okay, you guys absolutely were, um, you know, an integral part of the spreading of disinformation that allowed for, you know, Donald Trump to get elected. Like you all did not fact check things. Like there was an absolute, um, I, I'm not going to say ignoring. I mean, they turned a blind eye. Like they willfully just were like, oh, this can get more ads. So fuck it. Like, let it, let it ride. And then when you see, um, like <laughs> when you see, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Documentaries like The Social Dilemma, you're just like, ah, like this was incredibly duplicitous and, and like put forth in a very like thought out way. It then becomes like, okay, how do you, reconcile being a positive part of this toxic space, right? Like I know that I've absolutely utilized Instagram in the best way possible for me. Um, and like people have said to me, like, thank you know, like I, I get, I get recognized for like my podcast and for my Instagram way more than I do for insecure, like, Far, far more. And for the most part, it's because people will be like, oh, you know, the, the messaging that you're saying, like, it's helped me through this or it's helped me heal or, you know, it's helped me find my voice, et cetera, et cetera. And so, like, how do we reconcile that? Well, first of all, I have to say, uh, it does not surprise me that you're recognized for your Instagram because you're awesome at Instagram, your Instagram. <laughs> and also, I think you, you, you use it in a way that's very much focused on, like, education and community building. And I think that's like what makes it so special. So I have to really lift that up because you're nailing it on Instagram. (laughs) I think it's, it sort of goes back to that making lemonade out of lemons thing. I think that creators like yourself have been able to utilize these platforms, especially Instagram, I think to uh, uh, like almost in spite of the toxicity that I feel like is oftentimes amplified there 
to build amazing movements, amazing community, to really build something special and that feels good and that feels helpful and useful. And I think that when they do that, I almost feel that it is in spite of what the creators had in mind. Like on, I feel like on Instagram these days, because they keep tweaking their algorithm to compete with other platforms like TikTok, I feel like now it's almost just like a shopping app that has TikToks that I already <laughs> saw repurposed. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's like, I feel like they aren't making it easy for creators to, to be their best selves and do their best work there. They, I feel like, you know, when they, I remember when they changed their rules, seeing Instagram's creator guidelines of how you can, how you can perform better on Instagram. And it was like, oh, post like four reels a day, that kind of thing at these specific times. And it was like, these people are people, they're humans. They are not like never ending content machines. And if you give, if you tweak your algorithm such that they feel like they have to create, 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 and that's the only way to get a, to get a, a foothold on the platform, you are not setting these folks up for success. You are not, and not to mention, you're not setting them up to feel good as humans because everybody needs to take breaks, be offline, curate their well, offline this isn't their world. job necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like, I mean, Instagram is not my job. Right. Like, it's a part of, but, like, in real time, like, for instance, like, last week has been, like, a crazy busy week, so I just, like, haven't been posting. And then I'm, like, in my head, like, oh, no, I haven't been. But then I have to remember, this is not your job. Like, yeah, Facebook would love it if you thought that that Instagram, being good at Instagram was a part of your job and that you never expected them to pay you for that, but that if you uh, see that as a plank of your professional obligations, they would love that. They would love well, it if you felt like you could never take breaks. How do you feel about this new pay, the paywall that they're creating? Ooh, uh, I, so this is great. That's another great question. I think it is good. I think that like, People who spend a lot of time making thoughtful content to keep their platform relevant should be paid. Um, I think it's like very overdue. And I think it is a little, it's a tiny, tiny step of kind of writing what I think are like deep harms of stringing creators along, like being like, oh, this is how you get, you know, this is how you perform well on Instagram. Oh, now it's, this is how you perform well on Instagram. I think if you're going to, treat creators like that, you've got to pay them something, right? Like it can't just be you like, you know, and I also think that for so many particularly marginalized creators, like they don't always have the luxury of being like, I'm just going to not create, right? Because I think that a lot of folks report that they feel like they have to show up on these platforms in a very specific way. They have to be there over and over and over again, even if they're even if they're burnt out, even if they're tired, even if they don't feel like it, because that's how you perform well. And I think that if that's going to be the relationship, people ought to be being paid. I mean, I have a Patreon um, for Smart, Funny, and Black. I just, I low-key just feel better having a Patreon than having done like this thing with Instagram because I feel like it just sinks me more into like the fabric of their shadiness. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, like they're getting a percentage. Um, and I've been, I've really been actively trying to transition out of Instagram into other spaces, like trying to do more on TikTok, like TikTok, like we have the radio show on, um, Sirius right now. And then also doing more on, on Patreon, 
But to be honest, you know, it's like an addiction. I mean, you're, you're, and, and not even necessarily to me to say like, oh, an addiction, like it's a anxiety build saver because it, it has been that at some point, but more so it just feels like they did a really good job of building it into people's um, what's the wrong, like into the, the fabric of, of actually of building it into the fabric of people's actual career space. You know, like for me, like when you said like Instagram would be, would love if I felt like this is a part of my, that being good at Instagram was like helpful for my career. Like, I mean, it's, I can't even argue that like it successfully did that fuckers. Like, <laughs> and I hate it. Like, because like, okay, can you explain shadow banning? Yes. So because by the way, they swear up and down that they don't shadow ban. Yes. Oh, so this is such an interesting tidbit. I, I often am in meetings with uh, tech leadership from platforms. Like I had a meeting just before talking to you, I was in a meeting with, with uh, Pinterest about some of their new changes. Every leader, every leader from every platform I have ever talked to says that they do not shadow ban, that there is no kind of thing that they do where your content will be suppressed based on what you talk about or who you are. However, we also survey social media users and probably the biggest complaint that they have is that they have been shadow banned. So I don't know who's, I don't know, you know, all I can say is that I don't think that thousands and thousands of creators would have the same complaint that they feel that their content is being actively and specifically suppressed uh, when they post it, I, I think it would be really something if all of those same people all had that same like that. Like, I don't think I don't think all those people could be making it up. Yet, platforms unanimously all say that it doesn't happen. So, you tell me. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've experienced it for real. I've talked to a number of other influencers who, or I don't even like the term influencers, but other creatives on these internets who have experienced it. You know, people will tell me that they follow me, they like my content on a regular basis, and yet they continuously have to search for it. You know, like um, I follow a page called A Girl Has No President. And when I searched it the other day, her she did not come up in my search. And I had to click see all results mm. in order for her to come up. My, I like her posts at least once every day. So, but she posts content that is, I won't even say subversive. I mean, she simply just posts news stories that are relevant to um, an audience that is focused on social justice and that really wants to be informed about the, the things that are happening beneath the surface that are ultimately going to affect what's happening above the surface. But I, I was banned from Instagram live for, was it three months? Um, because they said I had violated the community, um, you know, what, what's it called? The community, um, community guidelines. Yes, they said I had violated community guidelines three times in a matter of 90 days. And the violation was explained to me as, well, you are using stern language. You're using harsh language um, in response to people. But it would be like someone telling me I'm stupid. And then like they have the word donkey in their literal Instagram name. And I reply back and say like, well, if you think I'm stupid, then your Instagram name is accurate. I got flagged. Good burn, first of all. Like, like I mean, they just <laughs> laid that out for me. If I would have been, I would have been wrong to not use that. You Absolutely. know, so you know, then like, you know, um, 
basically there there's like you you're speaking with harsh language to people you shouldn't be allowed to curse at people etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like if you come at me crazy why can i not respond and they said because you are a public figure so this does not surprise me at all um particularly on facebook and instagram we have seen time and time again their moderation policies not being evenly enforced. And so somebody who is marginalized, if you're a woman, a Black woman, woman of color, you are much more likely to be uh, punished for things that, that you say, while people who, do, who are not marginalized are less likely. There used to be this thing on Facebook where if you were a woman and you said the phrase, quote, men are trash, that was a bannable offense. Bannable. Just wow. saying men are trash. They've since corrected that. That is no longer the case now. But You know, we've seen time and time again where usually algorithmic-based moderation policy, so a policy where, like, a human is not the one who is looking at it and making the final decision, will oftentimes be biased against somebody who was marginalized. And so you might say, like, Mm. well, somebody came into my Instagram Live and started talking crazy to me. I was just giving them what they were giving back to me. And these algorithmic-based moderation policies don't see it that way. And so that is something that does not surprise me. That is something we've seen time and time again. And I also wanted to say something about your point about Patreon. We're seeing more and more folks leave these open platforms for platforms that are that are a little bit smaller and, and reporting having a better experience there and just feeling a little bit more breathing room yes. of being able to like talk to people who have talk to humans to be there. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's not even just the patrons, but even being able, being able to speak to people at the company, you know, like my person who is supposed to be like my Instagram, you know, account person um, is just non-effective, right? Like, I mean, he spoke to me, we had like one call and then when shit hit the fan, he just disappeared like Homer Simpson into the bushes. And um, when there was more research, like, you know, poking around done to find out, like, what's the situation? His superior was like, I don't see a problem with this, you know? And I'm like, I have almost 2 million followers and I'm a consistent user. And as you consistently say, we are the ones who make these platforms operate, like the users. And if you are somebody with, like, millions of followers, like, they are making money off of the ads associated with your page. So it's definitely just nice to be somewhere where like when we have an issue, I can like reach somebody and they will genuinely like troubleshoot and try to get to the bottom of it. I mean, I've had a little better luck at TikTok, but it's still just this idea of um, feeling like you're pouring into a space that doesn't give a single fuck about you. And, and, and literally has demonstrated that to me when like someone threatened me and, um, I mean, I've had this more than once happen, but someone threatened me and was like, um, when I see you, I'm going to punch you in the face. And they were like, yeah, we don't see anything wrong with this and didn't remove it. And then another thing happened earlier this year where someone said something really like, you know, uh, heinous that was about physical violence. And, um, they were like, yeah, we can't find their page. And so it was only by me like putting that out on my Instagram that someone who worked at Instagram contacted me while he was on vacation and was like, this is not okay. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Like, and it took like a week for this to get removed and for the person's page to be removed while that person created a new page and continued to harass 
black women in my comments <sighs> because the the statement was like um women like you black women like you should be erased from Ooh. the planet that's what it was like black women like you should be erased from the planet and so like I had posted and then people were in the comments like, this is crazy. This is terrible. That person created a new page and then was harassing those same people. Now, let me tell you, they didn't create a new page from a new email. They just changed the name. So like Instagram was like, oh, we can't find them. I'm like, what do you mean? I can find, it says it in my violations that this person that I reported changed their name. Like, what are we talking about? But it's like, there was no sense of urgency around that. Like, there was no sense of concern. Like my, my, my uh, account executives like never reached out. And I consider that to be a whole other level of toxicity, right? Like, I feel like the fact that there's this, this um, misappropriation of, like you said, like the marginalized people are the ones who are getting moved to the left because we, we know we've seen racists talking wild and crazy kids on this internet and they just continue to live their best lives. Absolutely. I'm so disgusted and sorry that that happened. And the amount of work that you had to do to get someone to listen to you (laughs) is unacceptable. You don't work for Instagram, right? Like, you are like, it shouldn't be, they are a billion dollar global company. Why do you have to be the one to do all of the work to make their platform safer? That should be their job, not yours, no? And so, the amount of hoops that they made you to jump through. We should add, we should, we deserve, everybody deserves to be in spaces that don't treat us like this. Like, so to that point, you like when people say, like, we need black spaces, are there any black spaces that you feel like are legit? Well, there's one that I think that folks should definitely check out. It's, it's, I think it might still be in beta, but I think it maybe you can find it on the app store called Somewhere Good. It is a new social media platform that I'm really excited about that's really based around like, marginalized people having experiences that feel good on the internet. And so I'm really excited to see where it goes. It's, it's a, a designed by a black woman. So I'm very excited about that. Nice. But yeah, I would say like people like yourself who are really creating in like even on platforms that suck or platforms that we don't own people who are creating conversation and creating community in a different way. I think like people got to keep doing that. Like I am a big advocate in building your own platforms in your own spaces, but we should be able to, to show up on major platforms and not yeah. be harassed off and not be threatened off. And so I really want to honor and hold space for folks who are doing that because I know it's not easy. So, I mean, where do you feel like the energy should be put in challenging this? Ooh, I am going to say something that is a little bit controversial, but I think it's legislative. I think that, you okay. know, people, individual users... It's kind of both. I would say that individual users should take responsibility for creating the kind of internet that they want to have. And so I always tell folks, like, if you see something that is inflammatory or hateful, don't respond to it. There's this new thing happening right now that, like, it gets me every time where someone will make a tweet that's like, you know, there was one recently where it was a Black woman who tweeted a picture of Lizzo next to a picture of Jill Scott and was like, you know, it's not Lizzo's weight that keeps her from, you know, being in a relationship. Mind you, I think Lizzo is in a relationship. You know, it's because she doesn't carry herself with class. Ladies, men are going to want people, want women who carry themselves with class. And it just was such a, I clearly, clearly was a tweet that was meant to shame Lizzo and pit Lizzo against Jill Scott and Jill Scott against Lizzo. And I see this thing where people 
They know that if you disrespect a Black woman or like a queer Black youth, you can always get engagement. And it's so hard to not take the bait. But if you reply to something like that, even to make fun of it or even to to call it out, you're just helping it get more powerful, right? And so like, you know, um, I have to call out like, um, there are these Instagram accounts that will, you know, take a picture of um, Gabrielle Union's child who is trans and they'll say, you know, thoughts, question mark. And it's just something like that. And it's, you you know what they're trying to do, right? It's like very obvious what they're trying to do, but it's because stuff like that drives engagement. And so when I see things like that, really trying to train myself to not respond because I don't want them to get more engagement. I don't, I don't Mm. want to be why they get boosted. So I think it's individual actions, but I also think we're at a, 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 a space where there needs to be lawmakers really taking urgent action I'm not a policy specialist, so I wouldn't even pretend to know like what that urgent action is. But I think that we're at a place where technology and platforms are are creating real world harm. Like we're like we saw it on January sixth. Like it, it, what happens on these platforms can create actual dangerous situations offline. And Congress needs to act. Lawmakers need to act. Big tech cannot regulate itself. That much is clear. Girl, that much is clear. Well, we have a segment on the show called The Script where we ask our guests to provide some um, other resources, additional resources to support our conversation. So, you know, whether it be books or documentaries or other inf- other uh, pages to follow, et cetera. So I want to know if you had any, or podcasts, all, you know, just across the media, pl- the media landscape. I wanted to know if you had any suggestions for folks to check out to get more insight into challenging the toxicity on these socials. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. Um, You can check out, we are, uh, uh, my day job is with an organization called Ultraviolet. We're a gender justice organization and we're working to build a safer, more inclusive internet. You can go to feministnet.org to find out all about our campaign to build a feminist internet. Um, Yeah. And I would say, check out people who make interesting content about the marginalized experience online. Um, People like uh, Shereen Mitchell. She is the founder of Stop Online Violence Against Women. She is like, the OG of Black women's experiences online. She's one of my mentors, uh, Sadet, Sadet Harry, uh, somebody who's an awesome to follow on Twitter. She has a great Wired article about why technology companies need to listen to Black women that I cannot recommend enough. And you could always check out my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, where we would love to have you there for these conversations about what it means to be a Black woman online. I mean, I think, you know, for what it's worth, like, Sometimes these conversations are just to, are, are even if there isn't like an immediate action to to attach to them. Sometimes they really just confirm for folks that you're not crazy, <laughs> like, and that in itself can be um, a grand effort when so many eff- when so much effort is being made to make you feel like what you're saying is nonsensical and what you're saying doesn't have value, and you know that. I mean, like me being told that I, that shadow ban doesn't exist, shadow banning doesn't exist was like, stop fucking gaslighting me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Don't let these platforms gaslight you. You know, and and also like to your point, just figuring out like how do you empower yourself, even in the smallest of ways, to say like I'm not going to support this negative post and give it the shine that it wants because it doesn't come from a place of actual information sharing. It doesn't even come from a place of disinformation sharing. It comes from a place of you know narcissism and ego and really just trying to use this this space to f- feed a dark source. 
And that's what so many people say who really end up working in this medium. You know, people who have a certain level of ethics come out of it and say, listen, the social media space is playing to the vices of the society. The social media space is preying on all of our weaknesses, all of our flaws, and all of our, you know, shadow work. And it's something that I think a lot of us need to really truly understand is that we do have a responsibility in our own way of how we engage in these spaces. I had to really get better about like, stop clapping back. Um, Not just because like, it's a shadow man thing, but also because it's just like, that's me being like pulled into this dark space all the time by people that are truly not valuable and that are sick in their own way. Right. And I mean, you know, I'm a work in progress. Okay. I'm a work in progress, but I try my best not to, not to do it. But then sometimes the counter is like, like Mickey Guyton is a black woman country singer. She sang the Star Spangled Banner at the, um, at the last Super Bowl, And she's like, she shows on a regular basis on her page, just the, the type of racist crap that's coming her way as a black woman in country music. And in that respect, I'm like, she does that because she wants you all to see that like, this is a part of her journey in this space that, that, and this is a, something that needs to be changed. And so it's like, if you're a fan of hers and particularly if you're a white ally, like this is part of your work. So it's like all of us just deciding, like, how do we show up? This is no longer an air, a space. You correct me if I'm wrong, but it's no longer a space of just like, um, you know, an extracurricular hangout. You are a thousand percent correct. There, there used to be a distinction between the real world, quote unquote, and the internet world that has completely collapsed. It's all one world. So what happens on the internet, like it's not just extracurricular, it is actually what is happening in our world. And so the the way that we show up there, the, who, who is allowed there, who can be, who can exist there without being harassed and threatened, you know, that matters. That really yeah. material, it, it has a deep impact on our democracy it has a deep impact on our safety and it has a deep impact on just how we all show up as people. And so it really matters. I think that, you know, the advice I always give people is if you're looking to combat all of this toxicity and harassment that, that we've talked about today is focus on sharing positive, con- positive, thoughtful, relevant, timely information on your little corner of the internet. Even mm. if you don't have a lot of followers, people will come to see your pages and your spaces as where they can go for authentic, good content that mm-hmm. is not going to, you know, traffic in misogyny, racism, harassment, extremism, outrageousness. It, it, we can all take better intention to make sure that that's what we're sharing and uplifting and, and being a little part of the change of like the, the change that we want to see on the internet. And so I really think of using social media as almost like a meditative practice where when I see something that makes me angry, I train myself to take a breath, take a pause, slow down. Mm. I don't have to smash that retweet. I can see that and say, oh, okay, that caused a reaction in me. I will continue to live my life, you know. Uh, but it's it is a it is a practice. We are all we should all be learning and growing and trying to show up as our best selves, but recognizing that it, it's a practice, it's an intention. 
I commend you. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I did tell my fans at a certain point, like, if y'all see people spreading disinformation about me and being disrespectful, like, you got to say something or else it's just, <laughs> it just keeps going. And then, you know, it's it's like, because that's like, that's the, 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 the double-edged sword is that there's one version of like people who are just trolling. And then there's another version of people who are like actively looking to spread disinformation and being able to identify the difference and like checking the disinformation one, right? Like being like, this is not correct information. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes like we can't tell the difference and so we just let it go, but then it keeps going. It keeps going because then the two people that are supporting it, they tell that, you know what I mean? Like they tell their friends. And so like they end up being louder than the folks who don't support it. And next thing you know, it's just within the zeitgeist. Absolutely true. And I think for you specifically as a visible Black woman, people, I think that people are just willing and actually kind of like secretly a little bit gleeful to believe the worst about you. Oh, secretly, girl, they are vocally (laughs) gleeful. Like, ah, I told you that she kills babies. I knew it. (laughs) It's like, what? What? I mean, I've, I've experienced the worst part of that. Like I had somebody on this internet create an entire lie that I continue to have to like, you know, be a warrior against on a daily basis. Like, I mean, that's just what it was because by him saying that there were so many people that were like, aha, because they just wanted to believe that like, see, I told you she's a bad person. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, the person who did this is a bad person, but that's, it's it's more supporting of your narrative that you've created for you to just go along with this other thing. Exactly. And here's the thing. What do they call it? Narration, but something bias. Um, Oh, um, confirmation bias. Yes. Confirmation bias. Exactly. And here's the thing though. I feel like as a visible black woman, I feel like it's like, if people don't have to like you, but it's a completely different thing to make up a smear about you. And then (laughs) And then put a lot of work into trying to get that Bread to become like in, in, in the, in the, you know, in the zeitgeist, like that's, you shouldn't mm-hmm. have to put up with that just to use your voice and, and, and continue to use the platforms that you have so elegantly built, right? Like you shouldn't have to put up with outright lies and smears about yourself just to exist on, on the internet. Like you, you deserve so much better. We all do. Thank you, Bridget. We all do. We all do. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and, you know, the words that you said here to inspire people in the fact that they have the power to help change that and to, you know, challenge that, you know, just seeing someone like Mark Zuckerberg be ruling over all of our little worlds is just like, now see if someone had just fucked him. (laughs) Yeah. Someone who couldn't even get laid in college. Which is why I saw on stage, I'm like, you know, I, I hear a lot of y'all talking about good pussy, but you really just need to be fucking these nerds. Um, <laughs> we really want to just turn the fuck boy, uh, turn the corner. Uh, we really just need to change who we're fucking and also just invest in building up these nerds so they stop taking revenge on the entire world. <laughs> yes. Help, help them divert that energy into something Productive. Productive. <laughs> Roses? Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. You coded a hologram bouquet of roses for me? So much better than creating an entire metaverse to ruin our lives. <laughs> so, absolutely. <laughs> we figured it out, Bridget. We figured it out. We did it. We solved this thing. Listen, make better choices of who y'all fucking in school. And that is the part of the revolution. I, I, we did it. 
So thank you to us. You're welcome from us. And uh, where can folks check you out on these internet? You can find There Are No Girls on the Internet wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. Uh, yes, I am on Instagram. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Bridget Marie. Uh, yeah, I would love to have you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bridget. Keep up the good work. You know, stay low, stay firing. <laughs> Starbanes Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.